This is Future Sight, a show from Capgemini Invent. I'm Liz Lunier. On this show, we explore new ways for you to adapt and grow for the future in business. Today, we'll be discussing intelligent products and services and how many businesses are using exciting new tracking and measurement technology to transform their offerings in business. Joining me today to discuss this are experts from here at Capgemini. Hi, Nicolas Rousseau. I'm the Group of Leader for Intelligent Product and Services at Capgemini Group. And? I am Elizabeth Svensson, and I work for SKF, and I am responsible for digital innovation. And we have a new setup that we call The Lighthouse, where we are exploring new ways of doing digital innovation and, of course, also digital business. So let's go ahead and get started. Let's go ahead and unpack some of these issues. So first, Nicola, how do we define intelligent products and services and what new opportunities are they presenting for businesses? It's a quite rich concept, actually, that we've been bringing here. If you may start with a little bit of a narrative around the products themselves. I say first, if you think about a product and what intelligence might mean to that. I just take the classical journey of if you look 20 years ago, you had what I would call dump product. Okay, so just providing the service or even the function that it was supposed to bring. Then you saw the products becoming connected, okay, start interacting with their environment a bit one way. And now coming more and more to the intelligent portion of it, where they can not only push and get data, but interact with platforms, interact with users, interact within their environment, and create a new bunch of options, services, user experiences that will dramatically change the way products are being perceived by the end customer or the user and create new possibilities of value creation for the companies driving them. So this is in a nutshell what we call intelligent product and the associated service part, because as we will probably discuss during this call, it's not more about the product itself, but also the service that you're providing with this product. So that's in a nutshell the concept. Okay. Is there anything you want to add there, Elizabeth? No, I just want to emphasize, I totally agree with Nicholas, that we used to be like SKF, we used to be a component supplier with hardware of the bearing. That is what SKF is manufacturing. But now the customers are more and more, they want to have condition monitoring so that they can prevent and have as few downtimes as possible. And when I speak about downtime, that is if you are, for instance, having a windmill or you are in the paper and pulp business, then it is really important that you are running your factory the whole time. And if a bearing is coming a week, you want to exchange it before it has worn off completely. So that is why we use the sensors and that that is also why we are providing our customers with condition monitoring systems. Okay, that's really interesting. So how can the data gathered from some of these intelligent products and services really enable businesses to move in a new servitization business model then, Nicola? What Elizabeth was mentioning, again, to eco what she just said, is it's all about anticipation. It's about anticipation and making sure that there is no leakage, that there's no broken piece in the production chain. And how do you want to monitor it? Okay, there are two ways. Either you expect to your sensors, your product to give you some insights live and say, oh, I'm broken, or, but usually it's too late. Okay, obviously. 
So basically what you want to do is anticipate this event and how do you want to anticipate it, if not with data. So the whole question behind the scene is how do you get the relevant data, not too many, but just enough to make sure that you can trigger the right algorithms, the right mechanics behind to tell you, oh, here I might have a problem. And this is where the data from the collection, the ingestion, and the usage comes at stake. Okay, that's really interesting. So, Elizabeth, you started to talk to us a little bit about what SKF's journey was within the intelligent product and services space. What was really the impetus for SKF to shift to new intelligent products and services? That was to provide the customers with more value so that you can rely on our products in, uh, in, in a good way. And SKF has been in this business a long time, actually, for 20 years, which is long when it comes to connected services. Most hardware manufacturers have started much more recently, but SKF has really been in this for a long time. And that has, of course, also made us a bit unique on the market, that we can monitor our bearings in, in a good way. And that is also why we have a stamp as a premium brand. Uh, which is terrific, of course. And I would also like to say that, I mean, we want to interact with other ecosystems because the customers, they are getting data from many other manufacturers too. We need to be flexible in that sense and provide the customers with the data that they want and also that they can take actions on the data. That is really important because you can have so much data, but if you don't know how to handle it, if you don't know what to do, then the data is kind of pointless. So you need to have actionable data. If I may just rebound, Elizabeth, on what you were saying, there was an interesting concept here, which is the ecosystem. And I think it's worth that we're spending maybe two or three minutes just to emphasize this uh, importance for the intention product and services, because... If you remember my introduction, I was saying about the product interacting, but this environment is diverse. Okay. And obviously when you go to a factory, okay, there are bunches of different products who have to come together from different sources, from different suppliers, from different technologies. And all this has to come together. And the management of this ecosystem, to Elizabeth's point, is crucial for the end customer. Okay, because if you have two data environments or two specific environments, not correlating one with the other, then you're losing the value. And one of the big challenges for our common customers at the end is how do you integrate all that into a compelling and structured way of seeing their own business coming from 10, 20, 100 different angles into one consistent story. And that's one of the major challenges to integrate so I guess it's very important for our listeners also to understand that. From my point of view, there's no more any standalone product. It's a product in an environment. It's a product in an ecosystem. And that's pivotal now. That's really interesting. Do you think that that's a major roadblock for some of these organizations to become part of these ecosystems? Or how do you see that playing out for some of these people who are not, you know, who want to get into the intelligent products and services space and to move into this area or... Do you see other roadblocks as well? If I may start in uh, Elizabeth, provide your operation view on this as well. I think there are two ways that I saw on the market. The first one is trying to build your own ecosystem, okay, where you want to partner with, I mean, with your suppliers, with your peers, sometimes with your competitors as well, to come to some standardization of the way you interact. You probably hear in many times on the market, the API, the softwareization, the APIization of the ecosystem 
it's all about standardizing the interfaces between the different partners so that you can really operate all together. But then the question is, either you create your own ecosystem, okay, which is probably a long-lasting exercise because you need to bring everyone towards your own stuff, your own standards, and try to move it. And this is usually for big corporations or significant corporations who can afford it. Or the other way is try to come to some consortiums where people have come together already, have been discussing together, and try to create, if not a standard, but uh, some commonalities on the market so that you guarantee this interaction to the end customer. So usually these are the two ways that, uh, that we've been seeing on the market. And I would like to add to that, Nicolas. I, I totally agree with you, but I would also like to add that the maturity level of the ecosystems, the digital ecosystems for different segments are very different. So some customer segments are really, really high tech and they are demanding a lot of data and they can also make their own analysis. And some other customers, they are requesting data and they are also requesting consultancy. So our application engineers, they are very much appreciated around the world, actually, because they can help the customer to set up not only where we have a bearing, but also to make it fit into the the landscape of the specific customer, the factory landscape with the data that is combined to the different machines in factory. That's very interesting what you're saying. And obviously you mentioned that SKF is one of the one of the first companies to kind of move into this space. So, you know, today, you know, the statistic that we have is, is that about only 35% of organizations are currently offering these kind of services, but we expect this to grow to about 53% in the near future. What are some of the examples of these services being offered by early adopters such as SKF? Yeah, I would love to elaborate a bit on that because uh, 50% of the bearings that are not completing their life, so to speak, they are dead <laughs> before their life should be gone, are actually because of runner's maintenance or because of that they are not placed correctly. And that makes them worn out a lot faster. If you can add lubrication to the extent that is needed for the bearing to to live its full life, or if you can find in an early stage that you have not placed the bearing correctly, then you can also expand the life. And that is, of course, very costly for the customer to exchange their bearings long before they should have been replaced. So that is a big customer value, of course. If, if I may rebound on that, please. I think this is the right example of how do you switch from a pure product selling perspective, which is somehow, I mean, if, if you replace the bearing every two years or instead of five or whatever, in the old way you were selling product, this was good because you were selling more. Now, the big question is, and especially with what's probably ahead of us from the customer side is, okay, how do you ensure that I expand the life cycle or the life of the components? The market's expectations are shifting towards more services to say, hey, help me get the best out of it. Okay. And if you look at the capex intensity that is required to renew those equipments on a regular basis, this is where there you have also a small window for additional services that you can sell, by the way, to your customer. Okay. Not only, I mean, selling the product, but selling the services to say you'd get more if you accept to pay a bit more. And this is also opening new threads of value creation not only for the companies shifting to the 
intelligent product and services, but also for the end customer. So that at the end, it becomes a win-win situation where you're reducing the cash intensity of a business, okay, by creating value, which is a bit counterintuitive, okay, to some extent, but which is the new reality that we're facing. And to that point, Nicholas, because that is correct. We as a company, we need to lead this way forward because then we will be selected before our competitors will be. So uh, we are very much into bringing long-lasting bearings <laughs> to our customers. This is very interesting as well because we didn't touch that yet about the market differentiation. Okay, because again, it's it's not only looking smart, it's not only looking fancy, it's not only looking digital. It's a true differentiation at the end. Okay. Because more and more back to my, our previous point is what is the money I'm getting for the investment I'm making? Okay. And nowadays digital is still a bit upfront running the show. Okay. So many companies are now catching up. Okay. And this is where you're hearing a lot of time about the digital era coming. Okay. Because companies now understand that this differentiation is pivotal for their survival. And this is really this pivot that we're now seeing on the markets in many industries. It's not only a nice to have, it's now a must have. Well, it's almost kind of like you're moving from, in some cases, what would be more of a commodity of a service, you know, a bearing to being something that actually is quite differentiated and could actually provide additional information. I would assume that through this data, it can provide additional information, not just about when it could be replaced, but other kinds of information too. Am I right in thinking that, Elizabeth? Replacement, yes, and also as I was maintenance, so that you add the right amount of lubrication. So you add it when it is needed, and also that you are not exceeding it, so that you are not changing your oil when it is not necessary. And this is also good for the environment, of course, that you can use the oil as long as it lasts. And SKF is also selling reconditioned oil, so you can recondition it. And it also has opened up for uh, remanufacturing of bearings. Because if you are running your bearing until it is totally worn out, you cannot remanufacture it. But with our sensors, you can see, well, now it is actually time to do remanufacturing instead. And that is then good for the environment because you do not need to more steel and material and all the energy that is consumed to manufacture a bearing. You can just fix it and then you can use it again. So that is good for the environment and it is good for the customers. It sounds like it would be very interesting for many of these companies to move to these intelligent products and services. But, you know, what are some of the roadblocks that you're going to be facing along the way? Because obviously this would be a big change as far as how you're thinking about a product. Nicholas, can you tell us a little bit more? I think you spotted it right by talking about change. And from what we saw on the market, it's primarily a change management issue because you're totally providing a company. Okay, so just to give you uh, a few examples about going from the product to the servitization portion of it, take the example of your Salesforce. You need to pivot your Salesforce from selling a product, okay, which is, and I'm um, exaggerating and oversimplifying on purpose, which is just taking a technical sheet and say, okay, this is what my product can do. Okay, and it's better because it has this, this better than the competition towards putting yourself into the customer's shoes on the long run and say, what's the value? The customer is going to get out of the services between downturn times, between optimization time, between sustainability. So you see that the sales pitch that you're driving here is totally different. And second, still on the sales force, if you look at the incentive plans that you have, 
the services are smaller value per year, but long lasting compared to one of sale where you're selling a product. So you see in the selling pitches, in the selling techniques, in the selling incentives, and I'm only talking about the sales. This is true and valid for all pieces of the organization, for the after sales market, for, I mean, it touches every single piece of your organization and the below IT and OT because your systems have to follow as well. So to your point, Liz, not willing to sound too negative, if you really look upfront at all the roadblocks that you're going to face, this can be scary. And therefore, usually what we do see is it has to come from the top. Okay. If the executive management of the company is not convinced, this won't work. Yeah, I can, I, I can see where that would be the case because obviously as a salesperson, you know, if I'm selling a, a product that might be a million dollar product, I wouldn't be able to get that million dollar sale on a regular basis as opposed to having to have more of a smaller incremental revenue when I first think about that, just because, you know, it's obviously it's a bigger number, but over time, actually, you end up gaining more through this incremental revenue. So that it must be a huge change management process. But I would also assume that it's going to be a change of how the product is seen from the client's eyes, too. I mean, Elizabeth, did you guys, when you were at SKF and starting this journey, did you have to, you know, do change with how the clients were using this product and getting them to adopt it in a new way? It, it is, of course, big change management journey that we are on. And even though we started a long time ago, so we have pretty mature products by this time. And we have also bought an AI company to be even better in the predictive maintenance sector. But when it comes to the customer and with the sales force, as Nicholas was stating here, it is also that you need to connect with new kind of people. If you before you were having a relationship, a good relationship with the one perhaps on the floor or the one who was buying hardware. And now all of a sudden you need to create a relationship with the white colors in the office who are the asset management, the maintenance manager, or who are perhaps also do looking at the big financial picture. Because as Nicola said, instead of buying something as a once-off, where also the customer are, you know, they're used to buy a one-time. And now perhaps you are buying a prescription instead. So that is also something where you have to be a consultant to the customer and um, point out where the good stuff is. That makes sense. Do you also have to educate them on new skills of how to use some of these products too? I mean, did you find it took some time for some of your consumers to adopt these products? Just because, I mean, you see so many products on the market today, you know, smart products that are coming out there. In order for them to be successful, you have to get people to use them. What were some of the strategies that you did to get some of your clients to use them? You're absolutely right. And today, I would say that our application engineers who are helping out our customers, they are really doing a good job out there because they are helping the customers. They are giving them advice so that they do not have to have all the competence themselves. And of course, our application engineers, they meet perhaps a similar problem at another customer site so they can use that experience on a new customer site. So uh, it is, of course, easier if you are used to handle a certain or specific problem than it is for a customer to have all that experience within their own employees. If I, if I may rebound on that one, I would see two sides 
of the house. The first one on the product companies, because what Elizabeth describes has been now natural. I suspect in SKF, Elizabeth, if you have told about application engineers 15 years ago, this would have sounded awkward. I haven't been working at SKF for that long, so it's hard for me to say, actually. So I don't dare to say anything about that in case my colleagues are listening. I would say that data analysts, colleagues of mine, they are increasing in numbers and they are also becoming more and more appreciated, our customers and, of course, also inside SKF. So you see, this is the, this is the first part of I mean, coming towards more service-oriented mindsets, uh, I mean, application engineer, data scientist, uh, which is a bit far from the hardware. Okay, if I stay less less provocative, maybe uh, to that extent. So that's one side of the art. On the end customer as well, this is triggering new conversations. Okay, because the same way, as you were mentioning, Elizabeth, it's not only on the shop floor anymore. It's also how do you make the best usage out of it? So then you need financial analysts, you need also people understanding the end-to-end -end processes and getting the value, the use cases, to make the most out of those data, out of those new services being provided. So you see, this is this shift is really pervasive in all parts of the value chain. The end customer, the product customer, service companies like Capgemini, like we are. I mean, all this is pervasive and you need these new sets of talents to come and enable this value. Because otherwise everything's PowerPoint, everything's on the paper, or it's a nice thing that we don't stay on the shelf, okay? And you won't get the money and the value out of it. So this is really, Again, and without being too much emphasizing on it, this is a real pivot and for most industry. And also, Nicolas, I, I think you would agree if I state that you also need to have your shareholders on your side because you need to make a shift. And uh, then, of course, that will also have a, an aspect of what, where you need to in invest. And, of course, the ROI is then different for different companies, of course. Yeah, because it's on the long run. When you're engaging this transition, back to the roadblocks, Liz, that you were mentioning. Okay, if you look at all the roadblocks, if you look at the cost of those road, of removing those roadblocks, back to the scary portion of it, you need also to have a, a pretty long-term view about your market and get, uh, as Elizabeth was mentioning, your shoulders behind you because the payback won't be in months. I think that that makes sense, but obviously you have to be able to create a business case to go forward. And it, it sounds like you can create a strong business case to get that shareholder investment and to get that leadership investment too, because you can use this data to improve processes, whether it's R&D or product performance or reduce costs. So Nicholas, maybe you could talk a little bit more about what is the business case for R&D, for example, or product performance. That's a very valid question that we're facing anytime we're engaging a, a customer conversation. I would say from what we saw being an effective option, okay, I'm not saying it's the only one, is really to start with very tangible use cases okay, and get the ball running. Because the big risk otherwise is that you are being very theoretical. Okay, and you know, business case on Excel always work. We all know that. That's the easiest part of the game. The big question is, uh, how do you initiate the journey? And we see that more and more is, uh, I mean, without calling this a, a proof of concept, a POC or POV or, I mean, whatever the name, it's really important to start with tangible use cases to really demonstrate the tangible value creation out of this thinking. Okay. And the day you start thinking use cases, processes and value creation, then you can engage the journey. And personally, I don't believe no more in the very super high level top-down decisions. I mean, they are required in the execution phase, but uh, before that, when you're say maturing the thoughts and maturing the strategy, 
it's really important to be able to rely on very tangible use case driven data that will help the company shift and the executive's mindset shift towards say, okay, let's go and make it. So am I hearing you say that you need to have an agile mindset to move into this kind of uh, world of intelligent projects and services? Yes, I, I would recommend because in many cases, and back to the POCs, there are areas, I mean, these are new frontiers that you are investigating. And maybe Elizabeth, you would have some examples of that, but these are new ways of working, just new ways of engaging your customers. And there are areas where you're going to fail. Okay, there are areas where the value that you're going to create is not worth the investment for a customer. But Elizabeth, you wanted to react. I did actually. And what we are doing at SKF Group, if I can have that as an example, we are doing exactly this. We are empowering our regions and we are decentralizing a lot of the decisions. And that is to be more close to the customers. And what I prefer to have, that is actually a customer. This is what I want to buy and stating that clearly. And if that customer is very eager to have a certain service, then it is pretty likely that a customer in the same segment is also eager to have that kind of service. So if you have already a few customers for the new services that you are providing to the market, then you are more safe, so to speak, that you are investing and developing services and features that somebody will buy in the end. So I'm always very eager to be very close with the customers to listen in what they uh, are doing. And to get a, a good grip, it is actually necessary to go on site and see how they work, see their hurdles. Actually, sometimes quite easy. You can make their life a lot easier if they have the right digital tools. As Nicholas said, to be very close with the customers, also take the decision close to the customers. That is what SKF Group is doing by actually decentralizing the whole company. So you're empowering your people to do things at a more customer-centric and a lower level in the business. How do you go and make the case to leadership to fund the investment in the intelligent products and services? Yes, of, of course, you need to have funding to, to do these investments and you need to have kind of safe bets. And that is why it's good to have the relationship with the customers already in the first place so that you are quite safe, that we, we are able to sell on the market. But of course, the funding is necessary and there are more initiatives and innovative ideas that could be of interest to explore than there are uh, R&D budgets. I just wanted to give you some uh, some of the analogies that we're making also when we're engaging this. And usually what I try and take is uh, some examples of the classical consumer market that everyone knows about when it comes to digitization. And usually the example I'm taking are the platform plays. Everyone knows the App Store. Everyone knows the Android. And if you come to that and say, you know, somehow, if you take the analogy to say, somehow what you want to create is a platform that will enable all your people on the ground to adjust, okay, develop their own services around it and propose them to the end customer, then people start realizing that it's also what they, what they do naturally every single day with their smartphone, okay, when they're engaging. So when you make this analogy with playing or activating your iPhone, okay, and get the access to the whole range of apps, this is no more or no less what you are bringing to the industry. Okay, and then people start realizing that, 
oh yes, okay, then you're making the analogy and it's much concrete, more, much more tangible for people to understand. So that's the first way, you know, to, I would say, democratize a little bit the understanding. Okay, and say then back to our, your question about the investment is to say, maybe it's worth investing a little bit on such a platform, obviously not so big, but at everyone's product level or product line level to say, okay, how do you connect all this together through a single platform like the Hub Store, just to take this uh, famous example and beat the cases on it. See, and when you start engaging with this, you're somehow demystifying to some extent the digitization because everyone's using it already. And then, so, I mean, that's a great way to get the investment, but then how do you get that cultural shift with the sales organizations from selling a product to a service? How are you working on doing something like that? I would take the same pattern that I was mentioning. It's just the change management and get people convinced. Okay. At the end of the day, if you, if you do come and say, look, this is the new way, you get the reluctance of people. That's natural. But back to Isabel's point, if you have a, f- a few friendly customers where you can demonstrate that effectively the customer is eager to move on and that it is creating more long-term relationship. Okay. It's just to, f- again, pure change management, find the positive out of it and get the ball rolling is the best way for me to engage. And then you also get some reference cases, uh, which is good. Uh, because if you're a salesperson, you always need to have some good customers that you can rely on, that you can ask other customers to call because they can then give their kind of neutral aspect of using the products. And you should only uh, deliver what you think is, is good, of course. I would assume, too, that using these intelligent products and services, because it's helping with from a predictive maintenance side, it can actually provide more of a solution to the cost of emergency. So instead of having to pay so much when something goes wrong, it can make things a little bit less expensive with this kind of predictive measuring monitoring. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, uptime is of significance for so many of our customers. So they are risking to lose so much for just having unpredicted stop for just a few hours. So to have uptime high and secure is really, really crucial for many customer segments. And if I may complement on the cost, Liz, to your, there are, for me, there are two costs that we need to consider here. The cost for the end customer okay, that Elizabeth was mentioning can turn into millions okay, for a few hours, but also subsequently the cost for the product company to make the hot fix. And because obviously when your customer is losing million, Okay, they're calling you every 10 seconds to say, okay, where are you? And then it's no more a matter of cost of fixing it, it's how fast you're going to fix it. But then your cost of after sales, your cost of guarantee maintenance, if you look at the PL of a product company, and I saw that in most of the industries I've been discussing, when you engage on the after sales budget or maintenance budget, this is an untapped source of benefits for the product companies. So when we're talking cost, I always refer to those two. Because the second is a direct consequence of the first, but uh, in this bit more complex economical times ahead of us, this is an untapped ways of optimization that will get enabled by the intention products. If companies want to move into this, obviously scalability is going to be one of the biggest concerns. What organizational or leadership strategies should an organization consider when pivoting into one of these kind of a models? F- from my perspective is I would give two angles. The first one is think big from the start and think as a service from the start. So let me elaborate a little bit on that. The scalability to a large extent faces the big roadblock of touching every possible area on earth 
where you're going to sell your product is going to touch every single possible local configuration of a plant, of a shop, or whatever, where you will have to cope with it. So you have no single chance to fully custom-made every single implementation. There's no chance. So that's the first one. And the second one, so therefore you need to think standard, global standards, day one. Because otherwise you're going to spend such an energy, such a money that you're going to lose your famous Excel business case. Is that totally dead? Because your cost of implementation will be so high that you're going to lose everything in there. So in a nutshell, think global, standard, and big, for me, is the right recipe. I agree with Nicholas there. The more you can standardize, the easier it will be to maintain the different customers. Because you will have one team. And as Nicholas also said, when there is an emergency, when you really need to fix the problem right away, then you want to have done the same kind of fix or you want to have been seen that problem before so that you are experienced in fixing that specific problem. You do not want to uh, look into something that you have never seen before that might be unnecessarily complex too. So if you, you have a simple and standardized way of working, it will be a lot easier for your support department and your application engineers. So that I, I agree with uh, Niklas on, on that point. And, and it's also easier for the customers, easier for them to know what, what they are buying. And they can also uh, compare themselves with other customers so they can see how it works in another place. And if that is a standard solution, it's easier for them to take a decision if they want to move into a more digitalized way of working. One very important point here, and uh, I'm going to take another analogy, if you allow me to, is also one of the big buzzwords that we hear is softwareization, okay, that you, that you see all over the place. But uh, if you focus on what we've been just discussing, you see where the softwareization or the software layer portion of it becomes evident that if you want to fix something, if you can fix it through the software, okay, through a patch over the air or even that you are remotely managing, just imagine as well the time reduction that you're gaining in fixing the things. You see, so softwareization is not only about new services, it's also about making sure that you can really remotely manage quite a lot of equipment in a much faster and efficient way. So you see all those blocks, and again, it's a lot of buzzwords that we're, that we're just throwing here, but uh, at the end of the day, it's a consistent story at the end that is enabling all the things that we're discussing here. Well, I kind of want to throw in another buzzword here, and that's sustainability. A lot of people are talking in the market today about sustainability and ESG targets. How can intelligent products and services be used to achieve these uh, sustainability goals? If I can have a go on that one, then I would like to mention what I mentioned in the start. First of all, you will not use too much lubrication and you will not use too little lubrication. That is one thing that you can save the environment with. And then we have also remanufacturing. You do not have to exchange the whole bearing. You can instead remanufacture it and that will make you more sustainable. And then I would like to mention the number three, because when you are building a new bearing or any kind of hardware, actually, you need to measure how much CO2 that your suppliers are using when building the raw material or the thing that you need to have to build your uh, hardware. 
and to measure all the CO2 usage for the complete end-to-end manufacturing process all the way to the customer end-to-end. That is basically impossible to do without a digital system. If, if I may echo what Elizabeth just said, what's interesting as well, I believe in the uh, intention product services is also the retrofit to design. Because once, once you're gathering the data about the usages of your products, then you can also understand the way they are used. You can then retrofit your design for your next generation of hardware, okay, to see also where you have some potential issues, where you have some potential misusages. And this retrofit, okay, is also enabling Okay, better usage of the resources, better focus on your product and more and more eliminating what's not necessary. Okay. So it's again, not necessarily what you would think about naturally, but if you look on the, uh, say the product lifecycle management, getting this data into the design and engineering processes upfront, because here we've been focusing a lot about the, uh, I would say the run portion of it. But if you retrofit to your product design, to your product manufacturing, this is also an untapped area where all the sustainability and uh, optimization can come at stake through data. Fantastic. Well, I think actually we're almost out of time. Are there any final thoughts that you guys would like to leave our audience with today? Elizabeth, I'll start with you. I think you need to have a brilliant market strategy and a way to monetize on your services. And most importantly, that is dare to win, that you dare to win and and make all the effort that it takes to get there, because that will be the future. What about you, Nicola? How would you like to leave the audience today? If I would have one word, is uh, it's just that we're just at the beginning. Okay, We're just scratching the surface about the potential of all the new technologies, all the new ways of thinking. We're just at the very beginning. And it's about being creative, being ethical as well in the way we want to do it, Okay, being sustainable. But uh, Honestly, uh, if I look at so as some of my groups uh, of technological experts, I mean, the possibilities ahead of us are limitless, I'd say. So it's just about daring going there, but it's just magic. I think from that conversation, we've learned how transforming your business using intelligent products and services could be the future of the manufacturing industry. A special thank you to Elizabeth and Nicola for sharing their insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been Future Sight, a show from Capgemini Invent. We'll see you soon.